We are twin brothers who grew up Atari, or as we call it, in the vertical blank. Technically, the vertical blank is the space between the last line of the current frame and the first line of the next, where off-screen calculations create a cathode ray tube display. It exists, literally, between the lines, invisible, yet all-seeing, in a void where magic occurs that is never seen, only experienced. It is the figurative location of our existential longing for the past and attempts to bridge it to the present and the future. The vertical blank is an omniscient force containing the nuances that make our nostalgia a reality. It's the transcendental location that holds our best memories, biggest joys, greatest fears, and our most terrible losses. You've been warned. You can stop this tape now and turn around. For once you've entered, there may be no escape. All the scan lines have been written. It's time to enter the vertical blank. And welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of Into the Vertical Blank, Growing Up Atari. This is 8-Bit Jeff, and along with my co-host, 8-Bit Steve, we bring you today's episode titled, A Hole Burned in My Pocket, Toys R Us, and the Atari 7800. The intro music and many, but not all, of the ambient 8-bit sounds you hear throughout this podcast were created with a loop library by the great 8-bit weapon. You can read the show notes at www.8bitrocket.com. That's the number 8, B-I-T-R-O-C-K-E-T dot com. You can also reach us with comments and suggestions there. We're also available via email at 8bitrocket.collectibles at gmail.com. That's the same, the number 8, B-I-T-R-O-C-K-E-T, dot collectibles, C-O-L-L-E-C-T-I-B-L-E-S at gmail.com. We also have an Into the Vertical Blank Facebook page and are very active on our Twitter account at Atari underscore VB underscore pod. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us. Into the Vertical Blank.
cartridge only $33.97. LPT phone home with the Atari video game system for $129.80. Just 197 each at Toys R Us. You want Atari's 2600 video game system only 1st up this week, Jeff and I visit a Toys R Us clearance sale to see if there's absolutely anything that we would want to buy. Jeff and I are standing outside the Toys R Us going out of business sale. Yeah, going out of business sale. So, this is not the exact Toys R Us we used to go to to look for Atari games. But it is one of them. I think yeah, I mean, when it first we, opened, we did we did go to this one. For the 7800. For the 7800. So, so what was interesting me about Toys R Us is the video game cage. The fact that they had 7800 games in it. So let's go in and check it out. We're going to go check out this out-of-business sale. And I'm sure we can at least go to the places where stuff used to be. Yep. Okay. So we're walking in now. Check it out. Um, so over here, no one can see this. We went in. We're heading back to the video game area now. Yeah, totally different than where it used to be. I think everybody probably knows that. All right, so now we're headed. Let's go down this aisle first. This is the aisle that generally has the Xbox 360, PS3, and 2 games. And they still have a pretty good collection. Things things haven't are taken down to if it was nineteen ninety nine it's fifteen ninety nine they're really trying to milk this, but you know it's a liquidation sale right there they've got the uh, atari flashback p s four volume two I think it's twenty percent off it's not fifty bad. games on that one i don't you know what it'd be fifteen ninety nine I don't know it doesn't say anything about it be that being not but you you think it would be but it'd be fifteen nothing some of these you know this is the one PS4. of these weird clearance sales where you have no idea yeah. now we're walking back from the old the new video game session to where the cage used to be, yeah. the magical cage. The magical cage everyone remembers. And if you were a 7800 fan, you knew that the games weren't even out on the shelf most of the time, even even tags for them. You had to go to the cage and ask. That's right, you had to go to the cage and ask. So the ca there's nothing for the cage. So now Jeff and I are looking for any place where they found stuff they found in the back that they're gonna, <laughs> that they have no idea what it is and they're going to give it away for... What they don't know it might cost. So we're gonna go take a look. We've got to look all around. Jeff just suggested we find the clearance aisle, which we're going to do. This is whole store is right now, but there is literally a clearance aisle. The clearance of the clearance aisle. Alright, so we found nothing, of course, but we found some mini arcade games that we're gonna talk about when they're we like, get outside. They're like kinda of like Legos but not. Yeah. So there's like they had some like Nintendo DSs for five percent off. I mean, this it, these li li these liquidation sales are notoriously stupid until the end, and then there's nothing left. So, okay. So now we're outside of Toys R Us. I have to admit that that was super depressing. Yeah, it was super depressing. I pretty much thought it was going to be depressing, but I just wanted to see 
where the old cage was, which is now like an employee like restroom or something. Um, no, it hit, there was there were double mirrors on it, so it looked like it was security. Security, yeah, yeah. Security. security. So interesting enough, I mean, that was our visit to the current Toys R Us. We'll talk about the classic Toys R Us a little bit, but what we did find the only the only classic video game thing we found were these little like, like rip off Legos. They're, yeah, rip. They're by ink. It doesn't matter. Someone the, has imported these yeah. in. So it looks There's like it's right there. It's a mini Frogger. It's a mini Frogger, mini Centipede, and mini Breakout. And I guess you. You you build them with Legos, and then there's a sticker you put it's, on the front. And it's a Lego-like the game. Block. Lego, like they're Lego compatible blocks. Yeah, the machines look really cool. They have does they, it say like blocks that work with those other guys? It does look very cool. Like the art is might is kind of similar to the regular arcade art. But that was an interesting trip. I mean, you know what I what I really wanted my my fantasy from the Toys R Us liquidation sale is some guy going in the back and finding the box of old Atari stuff exactly. that they need to get rid of and don't know what it what it's worth so they just put it on the floor and say everything's a buck that's my fantasy so i mean yeah like into the vertical blank the whole idea here is about uh, all the stuff we did growing up with Atari but also, and one yeah. of those things was definitely going to Toys R Us. Right. And so that's why we're here. It's, it's going saying goodbye to Toys R Us because it's going out of business, which is really sad for us, but it but you know, and getting stuff for my kids and other years, but really going back to Atari. So, do you remember back in the day was the Atari stuff? Do you have to pull a ticket for the Atari games back then as well? There were two different types of 7800 games. Some Not just 7800. I'm talking about the oh. 2600. So, oh, so no, 2600. Did you have to pull a ticket? The cage wasn't always there. I don't remember the cage always being there, but they did have those Jeffrey tickets for a lot of stuff. So it might have always been there because even when the eight hundred, but you, there was a time was when you there. didn't have to, you didn't take it up at the cage. They think they did. You go to the outside and they brought. It's like the special order where you yeah. would you would pull a ticket for for things and they would bring it to you. It's like what that, or you would go to the out to the side of the. We get those with bikes now too here, but or when we got bikes, but yeah, um, it, the there was a cage idea. I think at some point early on it. It was not. It was just carts were out there, but it was always so special because yeah, something about like pulling the ticket, and let's let's. I mean, since we didn't, re I guess we didn't really concentrate on Toys R Us down on the in the twenty six hundred no. days. It's really for the seventy eight hundred. But something about pulling the ticket and. Or multiple tickets, because the 700 games are only 20 bucks, I believe, right? And some of them were getting for 12 15 and so like So I remember we got the 7800 in for Christmas 1990, 1986, right? right? Um, and it's like it was ordered from the back of an antique magazine or some, something. It wasn't, it wasn't actually, yeah. you couldn't actually buy it anyplace else. And we got, with it, we got, obviously, Pole Position 2, and I got Galaga, and you got Food Fight, which yes. are still two of the best games. Well, those, yeah, those are two of the games that I play, I still play on it. And then for the days after Christmas, I didn't think there was anything you'd find the 7800 anywhere, but we went to a Toys R Us, I think in Van Nuys, and lo and behold, not on the floor, there's nothing on the floor, but in the video game cage, they had a whole stack of 7800 yep. games. I think it was Miss Pac-Man, Mm -hmm. Centipede, Dig Dug, Astro 3D Asteroids, 3D or... Asteroids, and I think we went and bought as many as we could yeah. at twenty bucks, twenty bucks a piece. Huh. Which, which now is like seventy bucks or something. No, like it's not forty. It's forty. It's it's you you have to look at the calculation. We'll we'll do it because um, but it's not. It's more like it's something between forty and fifty dollars, yeah, okay. okay. inflation wise. But still, like twenty bucks was cheap for video games. So the Tremels were just blowing out games. Your your Nintendo games, I think, at the time between thirty four and 
and forty nine ninety nine. So yeah, especially for like a like a Zelda. And even though the Seven Hundred games looked cool, they had a nice big font. Like compared to the Nintendo games, they just looked like they were from the seventies. Right. Just the right. the big the big bright shiny box with the big font and Dig Dug, you know, and all these old all these games that really I mean at that point were only a few years old, but seemed like a decade old or a whole generation old. But what I remember, I mean, I mean, generally was going to Toys R Us and the cage, the magical cage. So then after that, after seeing that stack of cartridges in the cage, then I remember us, every time I'd go to Toys R Us, four years later, would hope to look into that cage, not on the floor, and see games that didn't, that hadn't like been released Kari yet. Warriors, some of the ones we saw. There oh, like Karatika, I think, I, I found in the cage. magazines. That showed Atari is now having a couple licenses, and it was Commando and and um Akari Warriors. and Akari Warriors, and we could never find those. No, I found them later. I think I got them later. Do you have them? I have one. I have. I think I have both Commando and Akari Warriors wow, in my CIB I've copies. I've only played them um, on uh, emulation. Yeah, but, I th- some of the back in like. In like 1995, when I was getting married, someone was selling a 7800 with like a hundred games for, I'd say it was a hundred bucks, 120 bucks. There was, there was, yeah, it was a mail place like in Florida, and so I bought one of those, and I got all hundred games, which I still have in CIB copies. Um, I didn't get rid of the boxes, but some of them were actual 7800 games, a lot of them were, and then some of them were also 2600 games. I have a whole 2600 games, like they were all things like that. Yeah, and they were all from. I think there's a Midnight Magic in there. You have to bring that out for one of our episodes. Yeah, I'll I'll show you. I have that box and all the stuff in it to see that box. We can look through the stuff, but but here's the thing. So they were all copies from that from the Tremel era. So they were eighty eight. They were all things released eighty four and well, beyond. So eighty six, eighty eight. Like if you had a secret agent in there, CIB. I don't know if there's a secret agent. Secret agent is awesome. I mean, it's um, supposed to be awesome. A lot of them are, are the red boxed. Secret the, agent's red box. The red boxed. That's where you I get don't like think, a new baseball. I don't game think it's secret agent. But anyway, we can. I'll bring. I'll bring over the box sometime, and we can go through it and take a look to see. Well, so let's. Um, um, but as Toys R Us goes, like then. Over the years, I think I, I don't think they I don't think I ever bought a Lynx game at Toys R Us, but I do remember seeing the Jaguar there. I think I bought some Lynx games at Toys R Us. Yeah, you do. Yeah. That I think I remember. I think because it, I don't remember pulling tickets. I remember pulling tickets for seven hundred games I think for, we sure. Games and, for sure, and and going to the at going to the cage. Software, et cetera, yeah, no, it was beat all night. I think seven hundred was pretty much what we had at Toys R Us, and it was we might have pulled a couple tickets, but for the most part, it was going to the cage and saying, "Hey." Point to the guy that was in the cage and saying, "Can you sell me one of those?" Oh, because you don't have a ticket out there. And then he would have to make us a ticket, right. like write it up with 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 a with a pen, send us to the register to pay the nineteen ninety nine or whatever it was, and then go back to the cage to buy it, which is kind of a ridiculous. Like, exactly. like imagine, imagine. Like that's that's the state that Atari was in at, at Toys R Us. Imagine you having to go and beg to buy a product <laughs> from beg someone. You got to make a ticket. <laughs> like you had to go and make me a ticket Please for the thing you are make selling. Make me a ticket for that set of silver boxes in the corner that you have no idea what yeah, they're for. It's, I would like to buy that thing from you. You make me. You're making me do extra work to buy the thing from <laughs> you. From you that you should just want to sell to me. I. I know there's a thing I want to buy from you, and you don't. You ha- you own the thing I want to buy. It's in. It's not. A, he doesn't even own it. 
No. It's just a guy working on a right. cage. You, Toys R Us, you have a thing that I have money burning a hole in my pocket. I have, I have a job now. I'm a, I'm an actual functioning adult with, with, with a with, job, with a job and extra whatever, money. Or... And I want to buy a product from and you. service from you, yet I need to go find it in your stock somewhere. You yeah, want like... And this isn't like classic stuff. This it's isn't like this like isn't like I'm I'm asking for like four dollar retarded changes. This is something that you your purchaser purchased yes. from wholesale to come to your store. Yet you have no idea what it is. Well, if it didn't say Nintendo, one of those guys didn't know what that was. Like. And I think I, I honestly think like that feeling, the feeling of of being an Atari fan and wanting to buy Atari product, yet having. To go to such an extra effort to find happen, it happened with the eight hundred too. It happened with the go to those stores that specialize in Atari eight hundred and it, the boxes of the South Bay Atari Users Group disc would be there, and you'd be going, "Well, you know, I want to buy the, I want to copy the Users Group disc. How about buying some software?" You turn around and there were four pieces of software on the yeah. shelf, three of them so old, and it's it's like if you had just had software to buy, we'd buy it. I know. And, I, there's anyway. just nothing to buy. But but just like, imagine like like that feeling of being an Atari fan after nineteen eighty four, right? Yeah. You know, nineteen eighty six and you're kind of surrounded by Nintendo and even Sega, feeling like the the walls are crashing. Like, no, I want I really want to stay loyal to Atari. Like I want to buy Atari video games. You had to go out on a limb. Go out on a limb. Like that is the feeling literally That's of living in, in the, the vertical, vertical blank is that right. feeling <laughs> in the ver- if you want to know what this this sort of existential feeling of the ver- of being inside the vertical no, blank is technical well there's explanation a t- in the vertical blank yeah, yeah. don't worry about that that's a type but i'm talking about the existential the existential feeling of living in the, the vertical, vertical blank, blank is going to a store and telling them what you want to buy because they don't have it on the because sales floor but you know that tw- exists but the vertical blank exists in that era of this, the 2600 is there because you were still a total nerd for playing with this 2600. I would wake up early when I, you know, I'm a sophomore in high school, and I'd wake up early in the morning to play Galaga on my 7800. But I freaking wasn't going to tell, tell a anyone. soul about it. Yeah, like, no one knew about like it. in high, and when we were in high school, you didn't play video games. It yeah. was not a thing. This is 1986. You would get your clock cleaned for telling yeah. someone that you played a video game. Say goodbye to Toys R Us. We're looking at it right now. Goodbye, Toys R Us. We're waving. It says up to 40% off, but really things are like 10% off. Oh, my God. Nothing's off. Goodbye, Toys R Us. We may visit you again. You got nothing for us except for those uh, little arcade cabinets that were cool. All right. See you later. You know, coming up, there's a story that I recorded called Claw Hammer. And it is about the first time I remember us going to Toys R Us to buy something. It's a just preview games. So that is the story for this week. And Jeff had mentioned, what did you mention about stories that there's, you wanted to, you wanted to solicit stories from people? Well, it's a story slam or something, but I'm just saying that we want to, I want to get in the, I want the vertical blank to be a story driven podcast in, in segments. So the segment that's going to come up, that's not show interplaying games is story driven. And it's not just necessarily story driven as a, uh, a fantasy story, right? No, this it's is actually a real, a real life, life story. story. Like a, so story slam stories are true stories. Yeah. This is a story called Clawhammer. It's about, it's about the first time we went to Toys R Us, except it's about a lot more than that. 
And I hope you enjoy it because this is the type of thing that we're going to want to do more of if it works out for In the Vertical Blank. So here it is. Claw Hammer. Part 1. The Mission. When I was seven years old, my dad gave me a claw hammer. It was summertime, just after a particularly wet spring. So wet, in fact, that the roof of the garage leaked in several places. My dad decided to fix it himself. It was Saturday morning. I was on the couch watching the Super Friends. We are going to Builder's Emporium, my dad declared. He was in the kitchen going through his normal routine before he left the house. He finished his coffee. He opened the vitamin cupboard and took out a handful of pills to supplement his day. He grabbed a handful of raw pecans, a banana, and headed out the screen door. My brother and I followed behind him. We climbed into my dad's four-door international pickup truck and headed out on whatever quest he had in mind. As we drove, my dad told us to plan. We need to fix the garage roof, and you two are going to help me. My brother and I stayed silent, listening to hear what this meant. Before I met your mom, I worked on roofing jobs in Seattle. We can fix the entire garage roof ourselves. I had no idea what this plan entailed, but if my dad was into it, then I was going along with it, no questions asked. We drove a couple of miles down to the corner of Inglewood and Manhattan Beach Boulevard and parked in the Builder's Emporium parking lot. At the store, my dad filled a cart with all the things we needed for the job. Rolls of roofing tile, tar paper, and a huge box of roofing nails. As he pushed the cart towards the checkout, he said, Wait! One more thing! We took a detour down the tool aisle and stopped in the hammer section. He looked around a bit and then chose two identical hammers from the racks. They both had iron claws painted black with solid wood handles. He gave one to my brother and one to me. Tools of the trade, he said. There is nothing more useful than a good claw hammer. He turned the cart around and we headed to the checkout lanes. My brother and I each carried our new claw hammers to the checkout. Part 2. The Work Site I'll pay you each 50 cents an hour, but you have to do everything I say, my dad told us. My brother and I were standing in the back back, behind the garage, next to a pile of roofing supplies, listening. First thing, get your hammers. My brother and I both went for the supplies at the same time. I reached for my hammer, but my brother was sure it was his. We were seven-year-old twin brothers who shared everything. Sometimes we just wanted to stake a claim to something of our own. We started to argue. That's mine, I said. No, it's mine, my brother responded. I grabbed the handle and my brother grabbed the claw, each pulling in the opposite direction. Stop, I said. No, my brother said. My dad quietly watched us for a bit. Then he spoke. Do you want me to get you two girls a couple of purses so you can fight this one out? It was inappropriate. It was not politically correct in the least. But it was totally my dad. It stung and it worked. I stopped in my tracks and let go of the hammer. My brother took it and I picked up the identical one next to it. 
It felt good in my hand. Solid. The wood was smooth, and the slight curves on the handle were inviting to hold. We both stood at attention and listened to what my dad had to say next. He started up like nothing had happened. First, we need to remove the existing tiles from the garage. You do it like this. My dad climbed onto the roof of the garage. It was a very short climb, as the back back was about eight feet higher in elevation than the ground the garage stood upon. This meant you could easily access the roof from there. Even seven-year-old boys could do it with the help of a step stool. My dad stood up on the roof and walked over to a row of tiles. He sat down and started pulling up on one of the rectangular pieces. The tile gave way just enough to pull out the end of the existing nails. He then slipped the claw hammer underneath them and yanked them free. Then he grabbed the tile with a gloved hand, freed it, and tossed it into the brush of the backpack. He put the old nails in an empty Folgers coffee can. One down, a thousand to go, he said. Now get up here and get started. Besides a hammer, my dad supplied us both with a pair of gloves and a pair of goggles, just in case something got near our eyes. My brother and I both climbed up on the roof using a step stool and started working. Under the mid-morning sun, sweat came easily, and the goggles fogged up very quickly. I had to remove them several times before I finished even one tile. The first tiles were difficult, but after a few, we got the hang of it. I jammed the claw of the hammer underneath the tile and twisted it down, pushing the handle towards the garage roof. The tile sprang up, exposing the nails that had once held it in place. I removed the nails with my glove hand and put them in the coffee can, just like my dad showed me. What would have been impossible for a seven-year-old kid without the tool became a simple, repeatable task with a claw hammer. After an hour, my dad announced, You each just earned 50 cents. The idea of getting 50 cents an hour was as much motivation as my brother and I needed. Even though the sun was hot and beating down on us, we kept going for at least another three hours before we stopped for lunch. After lunch, we spent the rest of the day up on the roof with my dad, pulling up tiles from the claw side of the hammer, removing the nails, putting them in the Folgers coffee can, and then throwing the tiles in the backyard. As we worked, my dad told my brother and I stories about his childhood, stories we had never heard before that day. Your granny and gramps sent my brother John and I to a boarding school named Manumet when we were kids, he started. Why did they send you there, I asked. My dad took a long pause before he answered. He pulled out the tile he was working on and tossed it off the roof. It hit the ground a bit harder than the ones he had previously thrown. Um... Because it was the Great Depression and they didn't have any money to keep us around, Manumet School was on a farm in New York State. It was like an orphanage for kids whose parents had to work in the city. As long as we worked on the farm, we could go to the school for free. What did you do there? My brother asked. We farmed, we camped, we fished, we even got to ride horses sometimes. There was a movie theater and a store in town where we could buy six pieces of candy for a penny. It sounds like fun, I said. I hated every minute of it, my dad replied. They sent me there when I was four years old. 
One day my mom, dad, John, I, and Poochie the dog were a happy family, and the next day my mom drove us out to the end of that road and dropped us off. She never told us what was happening. She just drove away, and the people at school took us in. How long were you there, my brother asked. Eight years, until I went to high school. I never saw Poochie again. My parents moved to a small apartment in New York, so there's no room for us. We were allowed to come home just a couple times a year. I couldn't imagine this. I lived in the same house with my twin brother, two sisters, my mom, my dad, and the cats. It had always been that way, and I was pretty sure it would always be that way. But my dad continued. I recall the first winter when I realized we'd not be going home for Christmas. I begged my mom to send me my ice skates, so at the very least, I could skate on the pond at school. She never sent them. In the summer, we didn't go home either. Instead, we were sent to live with family friends in Pennsylvania. My brother hated me for it. Your brother hated you, I asked? I looked at my brother. We argued sometimes, but we never hated each other. Oh, yeah. He was older than me. He blamed me for having to go away. He said everything was fine until you came along. He beat the crap out of me any chance he got. My dad stopped pulling up nails and looked up at my brother and I. We both stopped using our hammers so we could hear what he had to say. I told myself at the time he started, if I ever had kids on my own, I would never send them away and I would never make them go to boarding school. continued his pause. Then he reached down, pulled up a fresh pile, and removed the nails. The conversation was over. My brother started back up, too. We worked the rest of the afternoon. I thought a lot about what my dad had told us. It unlocked some of the mysteries about my dad's father. Now I knew why Gramps never shared any stories about my dad's childhood with me. He didn't know any. He was never around. We managed to pull up all the tiles of the roof by 5.30 of that evening. Time to knock off, my dad said to us. Good work, men. That was ten hours today, so you each earn five dollars. Let's get out early tomorrow so we can get up here and finish the job. My brother and I went into the house and ate dinner of chili and hot dogs, our usual Saturday meal. By seven o'clock that night, both of us were tired and sore and ready for bed. We went into our room and got out our statomatic baseball game. Five dollars each, I said as I pulled the first batter from my stack of player discs. I laid down Babe Ruth on the spinner and flicked the arrow. Yeah, my brother said. What should we do? Hmm, maybe we can go to Toys R Us tomorrow, I said. Toys R Us, yeah, my brother replied. The spinner stopped on strikeout. Babe Ruth had a lot of home runs in his days, but he struck out even more. Okay, I said. We'll see if Mom can take us tomorrow afternoon. And don't forget, if we work hard enough tomorrow, we can make even more money. As always, I went to sleep in my own bed that night. It was not much of a bed, mind you, as it was just a half piece of foam mattress laid on a piece of plywood. My brother had the same, yet sleep felt comfortable and nice. I was in my own house with my brother, my sisters, my cats, and my parents. It was not the Great Depression, and I was not at some boarding school in New York away from everything I knew and loved. Part 3. A hole burned in my pocket. We woke up Sunday morning and both jumped out of bed ready for the work day. 
It was still early when we went out to the kitchen to see what was going on. My mom was at her seat at the kitchen table, sipping coffee and playing solitaire. My dad was at the counter, grinding corn to make his corn cakes. Next to the grinder was a bowl of my dad's infamous health concoction, grape juice, egg whites, and pecans. We kids affectionately called it pink party puke. We will start working in an hour, boys, my dad said. This gave my brother and I just enough time to get dressed, eat a couple of corn cakes, and watch a half an hour of Tom Hatton's Popeye show on Channel 5. My dad made corn cakes with blueberries, which meant I spent a lot of time eating around them, as the texture was a bit like biting into a dead spider on a piece of cardboard. Just after an episode of Super Chicken, my dad announced that it was time to get back out and finish the job. My dad spent the first half hour preparing the tar paper for the roofing job. We watched him roll the tar paper approximately the length of the roof, then cut it. He did this several times until he had enough to cover the whole thing. My brother and I climbed up onto the now bare roof from the backpack and helped my dad lay down the tar paper in long strips and then nail it into place. After starting each nail with a few taps, my dad showed us how to swing the hammer down with the whole of our forearm, instead of just bending the swing at the wrist. By using the whole forearm to swing, we could knock most nails in with a single hit. As we worked, it was hard to think of anything else but what we might buy at Toys R Us that afternoon, with the money we made from the job. What could we get? Would there be any toys from that new Star Wars movie everyone was talking about? What about some new dominoes so we could build an even longer trail to knock down? The possibilities seem endless. As we worked, my dad started his stories again, after some prompting from my brother and I. What was it like living at boarding school, Dad? We played a lot of games like hide-and-seek and kick the can. I loved those games, but my brother hated them. Why did he hate him? I asked. I don't know why John hated him. He just did. I always felt like if he liked those games more and played them with us, he would have not gotten killed in World War II. Uncle John was killed in World War II, my brother asked. We were nailing the ends of the tar paper down, making sure to pull it straight so that it left no creases where rainwater could slip inside. In Belgium, my dad said, in 1944, he was killed by a sniper. He won a silver star for bravery. I stopped to think about that. I once had an uncle named John. He was my dad's brother. He died 26 years before I ever had a chance to meet him. finished laying the tar paper down in a couple hours and it was time to roll out the actual roofing tile and nail it down. My dad rolled out the long strips of tile on the driveway and measured them. He cut them with a large pair of shears, rolled them back up, and had my brother and I carry them up the stairs to the back back. We spread tar down, then my dad laid them long ways across the garage roof, and we all helped nail them down. We made sure that to overlap them so water rolling down the roof would not fall between the cracks. Did you fight in World War II, Dad? I asked him. No, no, no. I was in the Army, but I didn't fight. I was only 17, so I lied about my age to join up. I was in the 10th Mountain Division. We were sent to Italy. Our troops were getting mowed down in the mountains, and our turn was coming up. The night before they were going to send our entire unit to the front, I snuck out with some guys, and we got caught. They sent us back behind the lines, and I never saw any action. Oh, I replied. It was the only thing I could get out.
dad showed us how to line up the nails and space them out to get just enough coverage while also making them look uniform. Since the tiles were thicker than the tar paper, hammering the nails took two or three tries with a hammer. But after I got the hang of it, it became a two-step process. Start the nail with the tap while holding it, let go, and slam the nail down with a good wallop using the forearm approach. The feeling of the nails going through the tile, paper, and into the wood was intensely satisfying. Each one like a little accomplishment, like real work was getting done. As I hammered, I tried to fathom my dad's last burst of information. This is what it sounded like to me at seven years old. My dad was one day away from dying in World War II, and then by some random chance he was saved, and that's the only reason I exist now, up on this roof, hammering nails with him and my brother on this very day. Any slight change in what had occurred. An order that came a day late, a stray bullet, a torpedo from a submarine, and my dad would have ended up dead like his brother. None of this, not the hammer, the roofing tiles, my family, not even me would be here right now. The whole of the universe felt like it was suffocating at that moment. The world felt fragile, yet vast and lonely. Big things were out of my control. I wanted to scream. But before I could get out of sound, I felt the hammer in my hand, and I looked at the roof we'd spent that weekend fixing. The image helped calm me down. I hammered in the nail I was holding in my hand, and then reached for another. finished the roof by four o'clock in the afternoon that Sunday. My dad did not say anything directly to us, but I could tell he was happy with our work. We put in six more hours that day, which meant we had worked a total of 16 hours that weekend. At 50 cents an hour, that meant we each made $8. We put our tools in the garage, and my dad took us directly to his room, and he paid my brother and I immediately. He gave us each $8 in bicentennial quarters. Mom was going to take us to Toys R Us now, my brother told my dad in an excited voice. My dad gave us both a concerned look. You worked hard for that money, he said. Don't let it burn a hole in your pocket. My brother and I didn't respond, but I stood there and looked at him. After a moment, he spoke. I have a migraine. That was our clue to leave his room. He laid down on his bed and closed his eyes. Turn off the light and shut the door when you leave, he instructed us. And so we did. Soon we were in my mom's Datsun 710 station wagon on our way to Toys R Us. I felt the stack of quarters in my pocket. I'd never had that much money in my entire life. It felt good and hefty. I slipped my hand between the quarters and let the cool metal disc fall between the spaces of my fingers. I'd never been to Toys R Us before with my own money to spend. I imagined all the wonderful things I could buy with my money. Money I'd earned working with my dad and my brother. When we got to Toys R Us... I was overwhelmed by all the things on the shelves. The aisles were crammed to the ceiling with amazing-looking boxes and packages. All of them made promises of the joy and fun they held inside. As I walked down each aisle, I kept my hand in my pocket, making sure the quarters were still there, making sure this all was still real. Thoughts swirled around my head. Did I really work all weekend to earn this money? Did we just retile the entire garage roof? We zigzagged down the aisles, up one and down the other, looking at everything. The shelves were stacked with things I'd only ever seen before in the Sears catalog. Art kits, woodworking sets, erector sets, chemistry sets, rows and rows of die-cast cars, play sets, 
G.I. Joe and Barbie dolls, plastic soldiers, stacks and stacks of board games, and too many other wonderful things to fathom. We turned down the sporting goods aisle and looked at the bikes and fiberglass skateboards. Most everything was more expensive than the $8 I had in my pocket, but the possibility of all was still thrilling. Then, next to the roller skates, I saw a pair of ice skates, on clearance because they were far out of season. The ice skates reminded me of the pond at Manumit School, and how my dad probably never had $8 in his pocket when he was a kid. How he probably never worked all weekend with his dad and his brother, and how he probably never took a trip to a store like Toys R Us with his mom. More thoughts swirled around my head. My dad really did live at a boarding school when he was four years old. My Uncle John really did die from a German sniper in World War II. I found myself getting less and less enthusiastic about spending my money. But I couldn't leave empty-handed. In the back of Toys R Us, we found the bargain aisle. Lots of old toys with orange Toys R Us price tags slashed with a red marker and new prices scribbled on. My dad loved bargains. He told us all the time to search for quality things at good prices. The bargain aisle in a toy store was his type of place. My brother and I looked up and down the aisle until we found a couple of pretty cool toys for cheap. A cardboard Planet of the Apes playset and an 8-inch Wild Bill Hickok cowboy action figure. Together, they cost $1.50 plus tax. They were also things that I thought my dad would like and approve of. We had watched Planet of the Apes together on TV, and he loved cowboys more than almost anything else in the world. We showed the toys to my mom, and she agreed that they looked like they were good for their price. My brother and I bought one of each and left the store. When we got home, my dad was asleep with a migraine in his room. My brother and I opened our toys on the living room floor and played with them for the rest of that Sunday until it was time to take a bath and watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. When my dad emerged from his room just before bedtime, we showed him the action figures and playsets we had bought with the money we had earned over the weekend. His migraine had broken, and I saw a rare smile on his face as my brother and I showed him our purchases. It's from Planet of the Apes, and it only costs 50 cents, my brother told him as he looked over the cardboard Apes Fortress. Not bad, he said, nodding his head and pushing his lower lip out to show that he approved. And this is Wild Bill Hickok, I said as I raised my new action figure in the air. He only cost a dollar. Very good purchases, boys, he told us. And the best part is, you have most of your money left over for another day. Within a couple years, those cardboard playsets and 8-inch action figures were just a memory. The plan of the Apes Fortress got mixed with Hot Wheels, Tinker Toys, Erector Set pieces, and beams from a girder and panel set. The Apes got lost and broken. The cardboard snaps that held the walls together stopped connecting. Wild Hickok, who was also joined shortly after by Cochise and Davy Crockett, also from the bargain bin, lost his weapons and then lost his place in my heart, which soon had only room for Star Wars, Lego, and Atari. The Builders Emporium is gone now, sent to Chapter 11 many years ago by the likes of Home Depot and Lowe's. The Toys R Us is also gone, closed many years ago to make way for a mall expansion. An expansion for a mall that now no longer exists either. The tile roof on the garage is gone too, as is the garage, our tiny house, and the back back, torn down to be replaced by a suburban mansion. And my dad is gone, but I still have the stories of his youth, his brother, and World War II, and still find myself thinking about them almost every day. The hammer, though, is still with me. It hangs in my garage as I write this, waiting to be used on my next project. The same hammer my dad bought for me one summer day so we could fix the garage roof together over a long, hot, and unforgettable weekend in 1977. 
the claw hammer my dad gave me when I was seven years old. In the next segment, uh, Steve and I are going to talk about when we first got our Atari 7800 and how Toys R Us tied into that and into our vertical blank. Okay, Jeff, we are sitting now in front of an Atari 7800 console with all of the original games we got for the 7800 in Christmas 1986. So why are we doing that on a Toys R Us episode? Well, we're doing that on a Toys R Us episode because Toys R Us was where we could find the extra games that we purchased that were, did not come via mail order th- for Christmas. I think we talked about that when we were at Toys R Us in the car, a little bit about that. So now we're going to try the games that we actually got. So the first game, first 7800 game the that 7800 we're, original that joystick, Steve. We're going to try out is Pole Position 2. Okay. So when we first got this, I loved it because it looked... Like the arcade game, right? Right, uh, and I especially okay. like in this this um, in this uh, track, the Fuji in the background was the Fuji. But but the, but like you said, the um, the carnival one is really good too. The seaside amusement park in the background, you know, that was enough at the time to get me really excited. Just seeing like you know a um, a uh, you know some neat graphic that, um, but this plays a lot like it except the um. The road signs are not the same, and the car is a, is is a little less detailed. While we're here, I just want to try a different. I want to try the seaside track. Okay. See, it does have in the background, but I don't think you ever. I think in Poles, you might actually drive Poles no, too. No, no, you never drive by. It's not, it's not like turbo or anything where you or, drive by stuff. Okay. Okay. So I mean, you know, and I so, mean, it doesn't have a huge amount of sounds or anything in it that are great, but the music is actually better. Can I imagine Tia regular Toy uh, Six Hundred music to be? Um, is it because it could play more voices at once? I don't know. I think I'll, technically, I think it's. I think it really is because um, the processor speed was faster. And while you put another cart, I'll actually look that up. Okay. What's the next one, Steve? So the next game we got, we would have put that in first, and then I think and we, we would have probably would have gone. Quick. Yeah, I said, oh, that's kind of cool. Let's try Galaga now. Galaga, Galaga, which was one of our favorite games of all time. Galaga and Food Fight. Like, I couldn't wait, you know, when we, um, when we bought these, you know, when, when, um, when we found it in the back of the Antic Magazine for Christmas that year, and I think we, we showed the ad to Mom, and I think she got really excited, because now there was finally something again after, like, five years that she could buy us that, for Christmas that we really wanted, um, after all of our computer stuff. So she asked us, you know, the seventy hundred and, and a game, and we, um, it's not work, working for some reason. Oh, you know, the seventy hundred has got a little bit of a loose cartridge slot. Loose slots. There you go. Um, so we asked, Mom asked us for a for a game we wanted. And I chose Galaga, and Galaga. I remember starting up. The title screen looks amazing. It doesn't really look like the Galaga title screen, but it's, it's a great good. looking title screen, and. Um, the music is close. Um, it's a little slower. It starts out slower, but I mean, 
it was good enough to fool me into believing that it was a, a fairly good game of Galaga. Okay, so there, this is this is what I um, the the um, Sally six five zero two C is clocked at one point seven nine megahertz, but the Maria chip is clocked at seven point one six megahertz. Oh, so the so ma- explain what the Maria chip is. The yeah, Maria is a custom know. graphics chip that is used to display the the tile graphics, which is on, everything on the seven hundred is a tile graphic. Um, or a sprite in sense, but all soft sprites. So the Atari 7800 was, um, in, it was announced in 1984, and it was going to be um, Atari's real follow-up to the Atari 2600, and it was backwardsly compatible. And to do that, they had a little switch where, like, if you put in a 7800 cartridge, it, you, it would it would enable the Maria chip. But if you didn't, it used the old Atari 2600 hard, hardware. Okay, boys, let us not talk ourselves into angry emails. The tier was identical to the one in the 2600. Two channels sound in a limited octave range. What you hear are the GCC developers pushing the tier to its limits. Also, the Maria had a concept of zones and display lists in addition to the sprites and tiles, running at 7.9 MHz. Oh dear. Are you really playing with your cartridges and waggly sticks again? This is certainly compelling content for your three listeners, I'm sure. Golly me, we lost one, I mean two listeners now. I'm taking my pay from petty cash, as I don't think this will last much longer. Yes. And there was a there was just a switch in there. Even though the Tia sounds sound a lot like 2700 sounds and they are the uh, the Sally could actually halt the CPU, and in that way you could probably play sounds better. I, I wouldn't could. even speculate on that. But it's um, I was just looking, I was just reading the tech spec, and that's why. Um, but yeah, well, we can find out. Some of these games they do sound better than you would think a regular twenty six hundred game would. I think sound. we have to look into why that would be. So, so Galaga was my choice, and then you got Food Fight, Food which, Fight, which I had played in the Castle Park arcade about a billion times, and I was actually pretty good at it. Let's play uh, Intermediate, player one. This, now, Food Fight. I love Food I love this. My, this looks exactly like the arcade game. I mean, I know, thing, I know so GCC is GC a couple things it. that are different. Ice Cream Cone um, might not have the same amount of detail. Ice Cream Cone, no, it's a, this things are a little higher res. But the animation cream. of the guy eating the Ice Cream Cone is, like, amazing. Well, I think this was just so this, many frames of animation. I mean, I, I just was amazed when I got this because this was my favorite game in the arcade for a while in the later arcade years of, you know, 85 and 86. This is like a lost great Atari game. I still don't understand why people don't know what this is. Some, well, people who know the 700. Now they do. Yeah, well, they do because you had to actually go to the about... arcade in 1985, which a lot of people didn't, and that's the not that's 85. The, I mean, not 85, 83 and 4. Most people, most people were done going to the arcade, um, and um, but we weren't because we had a great arcade just down the street. They got all the new games. I remember one day Frontline was up for on free play, and I just kept on playing over and over again. Really? Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. So, so you like this game was amazing too. Oh my god, my favorite level the, the, the water watermelon melon. level. You just stand here and, and sh- just just nail them with because you of the can throw all the other food. Um, you just gets used up, but the watermelon does. Well, not. And you can also just stand there and hold the button. Let's see if I'll get a um, a um, instant replay. 
Yeah. I think you will after this. You gotta get another guy. You're gonna run out. Huh. Let's see. Oh, listen. Instant Th replay. Let's see that not... again. This is... And this music does sound really right. good. So, does this is this straight regular Tia music? I have no idea. And so that's the thing. And what was the chip they would put put into um, to the idea was? It, oh, they, they put a Pokey chip. So they did, and the Pokey's the chip from the Atari eight bit computer, yes. the sound chip. So the idea and the, was fifty two hundred and some arcade games. So, so the idea was to save money. They would they would just put it into cartridges instead of. Is it saving on the console? I don't understand. Or did it not work to have two sound chips in there? Somebody said there was some, there was some uh, move, there was some space problems. I just think that they couldn't technically get the using the TF so the twenty seven cards could play. I think they they had a problem with the TV interface being able to work, and they run out of time. But I think they really could have done it. So that's cool. So, so those are the games we got on Christmas nineteen eighty six, and then the day after Christmas we took a drive out to Van Nuys because that's what we did every week and we ended up at the Toys R Us in Van Nuys and what did we see so I felt like we would never see Atari 7800 games again except for what we got for Christmas but lo and behold inside the video game cage at Toys R Us we saw a stack of T Atari 7800 games that we hadn't seen before they weren't out on the floor of course we just talked about that I have we to beg people to do it and they, the games we picked up were 3D Asteroids Centipede Dig Dug and Xevious. All of them amazing at the Yeah, time. really well done versions I think, of all And them. all of them, I think, are games that came out, that Atari had had GCC design for the 7800 in 1984. And of course, there's always, this is where the vertical blank com comes in, right? right? Like, this is where you're like, this is the what could have been for Atari. <laughs> if this stuff had come out in 1984, and it was, the 7800 was backwardsly compatible, and there were some compelling good games, could Atari have changed their their um, fortunes around? Yes. Could they still exist? I think that there's a good chance that if this had all worked out, it could have happened. Because these games are good enough. They're satisfying. They they look like they they look like the games that people thought they could. Could you be. imagine the next generation Atari 8-bit computer that came out and had these chips in it plus a pokey and some other things to, to be really in. to really combat the Commodore 64. Oh, you mean like show like, it that it was, you know, there's a debate whether which one is more more powerful, right? And uh, and in some, for some games, Atari eight bit is, and for some games, the Commodore sixty four is. There would have been no more debate, right? It would just would have been amazing. A combination of the graphics modes from the uh, Atari eight eight bit, along with a Maria chip, dump jumped in there. I mean, anyway. I mean, and that's the what could have been of the vertical blank living and saying like like Wait a minute, you know, why are we playing these in 1986, 1987 instead of nineteen eighty four? Why is it three years later that we finally get? To really play the games that should have come out. But so this Zevious, first one, what is this one? Xevious, and it's having trouble it's fitting. There you go. All right. So I remember um, seeing Xevious in the arcade, and it was a game that Atari had had licensed. And so the Atari name, name was on it. Um, and sometimes it was hard to tell which games Atari licensed and which ones they um, they had programmed, they programmed or made themselves. themselves. Right, exactly. But I mean, to me, Xevious. This is this is a smooth scrolling vertical scrolling game with bitmap backgrounds and lots of enemies flying around. This shows me that the seventy hundred could have made any game like this. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, you know, nineteen forty one, uh, nineteen forty three. But like you said, um, they couldn't because Nintendo had pretty much sewn up all these licenses right. exclusively. Um, exclusively. 
That's why you didn't see those games on the Sega Master System either. Right. You know, gone were the days like when, when Atari had Atari Soft, and they just made all their licenses for every platform. Right? Exactly. And, you know, there, there would be debates... Because they want to sell the Razors. There would be debates about, about whether Atari was, like, making hobbled versions of the games. They were Of course not. Of course not. They were hiring... Of course, they, they, were, they were making the best game they could. It's, it's a business. They have to make as much money as they can. Yeah, they're not coming on hobbled. Spending on, you know, money on licenses. But, but look, look, I mean, this is... this. You, you, I love ZVS. I mean, you could... You can't argue that 700 couldn't do any games like like this. It's... You know, this looks like the arcade game to me. I know there's there's differences. Yeah, but there's differences, but it's still. I mean, there's it's the colors a little washed out. So what? So, yeah, have you seen that track? Yeah. Anyway, the one thing that um, that Sega got right was, um, and now there's none of these games. Nothing wrong with any of these games. Let's try centipede. Sega got right when they did that when they were doing the Master System was that they sure they didn't have license for those games. So they went out and made a whole bunch of really good ones that were similar, and, uh, and Atari tried that, but too late. Look at this nice, beautifully animated title screen. I know. Centipede. This is the thing that, At- that Atari 2600 games sort of missed, was like these attract modes. Uh, this, is, this is what Nintendo did right. Everything, when you started a Nintendo game, you knew what it was, and the 7800s tried Let's to do try that to do as well. That. Right, exactly. So here is, now this, the sound of Centipede is not what I would... I, I think this this sounds too much like the 2600 game, um, but I, I believe GCC also made centipede for the 2600. They did. They made millipede for the 2600. Also. They were making most of the games at the end until um, uh, Nolan Bushnell was hired to do like Secret Agent. Secret Agent. There's a yeah. couple that I have that are Nolan Bushnell made games from one. Of yeah, there's companies. like three or three or four yeah. games. But, yeah. but that's later. That's this is, later. I'm talking about GCC in 1984, yeah. 1983, I would be pretty certain that, um, you know, uh, that Atari Corp owed GCC money, and that's why there was never anything else made by them. You know, that's I'm what, pretty sure that's... that's. I mean, you, the, the, uh, we can find all that out in, in, the, in the Atari I was doing group. some research yesterday on Federated Group, um, and I found some stuff in a, in a, in a report online. Um, and so there'd be some stuff like that. I wish there'd be something about GCC in one of those. I can't two. wait. So, so I mean, this version of Centipede is is awesome too. Like I, I remember playing that again and going, "Oh my god, this is incredible!" Like, like I can't believe we missed all these games. How come it took so long for them to come out? I don't know. And I'm playing Dig Dug, even though my favorite game of all time is Asteroids. But I'm playing Dig Dug because this actually is a really neat version. This Listen is to the music. It, see, you couldn't do that on Twenty Six Hundred. There's something. You sure there? There's not a um. There's no other pokey. Music. There's no pokey in any. There's only a couple of games with pokey in them. I know for one is a game that people. God, I can't, I can't remember. It's not Karotica. It's another one. Karotica is the worst translation of a game. Ballblazer, though, right? Ballblazer Ball is one, and there's another one, and so people um, want that game just so they can harvest the pokies, and um, I don't think they should. I mean, they should be playing the 7800 games. Um, there we go. Great. Now, probably the best so version. I of Dig love Dug. Dig Dug in the arcade. I was so dis- disappointed by like the, the eight bit computer version, but this version now, what was, was awesome. I don't know. It just didn't look right. This had this. Oh, I, I think it was the so, so silly to me now thinking back. It was the the text font. The text font in that looked yeah. like an arcade font, and the eight bit version used the standard. Um, Atari font, and it made, really made made me mad. I mean, those are the types of things that made me mad back then. So here's the, here is the coup de gras, though. 
me, 3D asteroids. To me, this is, this is the best asteroids game ever made. Plus, it has the simplicity of Megaroids and the and the astero- regular asteroids games, but it just has the look that you wanted from asteroids. Um, and they could have done something and very similar to this, yes, on the Atari 8-bit version of asteroids, which is just a b- disaster. You know what? You know what I, I really like about this that you mentioned is there's a two-player simultaneous mode. Yes, and and I don't think there were many games that did that before before this one to actually let you play. It, it's one of the first games I think that was that really allowed you to um to to be cooperative. I mean, Space Duel did it as well in the arcade, but to be a to have a cooperative video game was rare at the time. Um, and I think quite, you and I sat quite possibly the centipede. They did that with a lot of seven hundred games. So quite possibly centipede allows you to do that on this system. I like to take. I, I don't know. I need to take, take a look. But. I, I don't want. I don't want to bog us down with too much gameplay in here. But this game's awesome. <laughs> so so I mean that this is the thing. Like like we you know Toys R Us somewhat became our refuge for a while for the seven eight hundred because we would go there and look at the video game cage to find out what games were available because they really weren't available anywhere else. Didn't really buy too many twenty six hundred games there, did you? Um no, we bought we bought Solaris and David's Midnight Magic. I know I know those I know I got those two. And they and they were good as well. I mean that was those are good games. Um, but uh, but that was really the the for me um, my my feelings about the toys are, about Toys R Us as far as Atari, Atari is concerned centered around that sort of quest to find the games and how how hard it was. You know, we we really didn't make it easy for ourselves we being a Atari fan. We would go there. Well, yeah, we would go there, um, and there would be uh, a couple a couple tags on the wall. But we were we looked we saw in magazines. That there was a, a new games that were coming out like Akari Warriors and things like that, and we look, went to that Toys for Us every single weekend to find those. Could never find them. Motorcycle, all these different games, never had them there. I don't know where. I remember seeing in the in the video games Tower Toppler. Yes, and buying that, and and that that was a pretty cool game. So that really, I mean, the seven eight hundred sort of tied to Toys R Us with me because of because that experience, of that. that shared experience. And and you know, it's tough to see Toys R Us. Go for that reason. There's a lot of nostalgia. Um. So Jeff, you a few weeks ago you came to me and you said, "Hey, I got this idea for a podcast. It's called Into the Vertical Blank." And the name blew me away. I was like, "That's an incredible name." Now I don't know why it's an incredible name, but I knew as soon as I heard it that I knew exactly what you meant by it. But I didn't know what it was. <laughs> so to me, um, just when I think about the vertical blank, it is basically um, you, you and I sitting here. While I sh- at work at, at lunchtime and playing Atari 7800 games, right? That's my vertical blank. Now, what does that mean? It takes me back to a time when I well, didn't have to worry about anything. Well, our intro kind of explains, you know, it's kind of it's kind of like you know, um, I, I it sort of makes me feel like uh, you know, there is a there is there's there's a time when 
Atari went away. Like, I feel like we're the Atari generation. We had this whole lifetime of of magazines and, and you know, world records and companies and people and heroes and games and things to play stuff. And it all sort of built up and then just went away. Disappeared in 1984. Just went, just disappeared. And, it, you know, I think I talked about this. It, it, maybe maybe we recorded it or not, but about like the Mount Vesuvius, like Pompeii, like there's a lot that like just just all of a sudden things are just destroyed, and there's some stuff left over that's sort of the remnants, but nobody really there's 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 no, nothing left, right? Right. And in that destruction, I think this is where like when that when things just when Tar- Atari just went out of bit business, it really that signified the end of that era, you know, when they when they sold out to Tremille. Um I think that's why you'll find lots of people looking for like games that weren't finished or you know that were never released because there's a lot of stuff that just died with, with it. An entire business, right? An entire business died with it. An entire culture died with with it, right? I mean, think about this: the after Electronic Games magazine stopped being published in like, well, really ended at the end of 1984. There were a few more issues. Uh, and, uh, a new in America, a new magazine dedicated to video games that was independent, not 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 tied to Nintendo or Sega, didn't come out until almost five years later. Right, right. That and that that magazine. I mean, it sounds silly now because we have in, the in, internet where we can talk about stuff. The magazine that was really your cultural touchstone was was that. So think about that gap in time. That gap in time to me is also the vertical blank. The time between when Atari, Atari shut, shut his doors, the original one, and the 7800 came out. Or the time between the magazine ending and a new one starting. Or just that time that time that we li- lived in where the, where the electronic games magazine was the going concern. Like it's, right. you know, all that sort of swirls in my head about like when you mention the vertical blank, like I feel what you're saying. I feel what that means. So technically, what is the vertical blank? Every once, every uh, sixty times a second, uh, the an image on the screen is drawn. In between, the the uh, phosphor gun f- getting to the bottom of the screen and getting to the top, moving to the top, is the vertical blank interval. So there's a time. There's a time in between when the when the last line is written, yes. and then the first line of the next frame is written. Yes. In that time, people who wrote software for video game systems and computers and even even arcade machines that display stuff on a CRT screen at 60 frames a second or even 50 frames a second if you're in the UK. The time when the last line was written of that frame and the first line was written of the next frame, that time you could spend calculating the next frame or creating the magic. Creating the magic. And so because we come from that time you know, this this is it's, I think that the vertical blank time is imperceptible. I mean, six, 60, 60 frames a second. You know, it's probably imperceptible to to a human, but maybe not subconsciously. Like subconsciously, I knew something was happening in that time, in that vertical blank time. But that's where I think you know this podcast lives in that time. Um, you know, as we try to f- figure out what those what the nuances when when you try to create. Um, a new game, you know, the nuance of that, of the timing and the sounds and all that, all that is incredibly important right. to be recreated, right? In some cases, people want to play those games on an old TV just to get that feeling back. Right, because we're, we're playing these on a 32-inch HD TV, and it does look great and sounds great, 
but it's not the same as playing on a CRT. No. And want to know why? It would be fuzzier to play on a CRT. Yeah, yeah. Actually. <laughs> and you could you, there's some perceptible flickering too that you get right. when you uh, when when you would you know when it because it doesn't refresh the same rate. So what do you think? You know, is that the vertical? What is the vertical blank? What are we doing here? So to me, the vertical blank is the second half. Of Generation X? Oh, yes, yes, yeah, right. So we, we talked a little about this before um, when we were preparing. The second half, so our, our sisters, but not just our sisters, I mean kids that were older than us, like five years before, um, our sisters were punk rockers, right? And that was their thing. Like music became the way, that was their rebellion, yeah. right? And we were affected by that because we like music too, but, but a lot of it was like post-punk and new, new wave. Um, but their rebellion was... was um, it, right in your face. And our rebellion is a little bit different. The second half of Generation X, which I still think is the Generation Atari, or the vertical blank generation. Not the blank generation like Richard Hell sang about, but um, the, vertical, the blank. vertical blank generation, the second half. That's that's the people who are affected by, you know, playing those original video games and understanding that you had now control of the TV. And you could make it do what you wanted. No longer were we just being pushed down the NBC News and the Brady Bunch reruns and Scooby-Doo. Not, none of those things are bad, but like we pretty much were consumers of it. Now we could control part of it and put input back in. So um, it was no longer a passive medium. And you'll see in, in every single generation that led up there, they had their own rebellion where they took control of things away from whoever the man was. I'm just saying radio, the man in a sense. Radio. Movies. The, um, comic book. The half of the generation before us of Generation X. They wanted to change and take control of music because that's well, what they had. Because rock and roll was the rebellion of the baby boomers. Right. right. So the first half of Generation X, they're 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 being their taking was being given to them and they're like, wait a minute. We can do this ourselves. Right. And that's where punk rock kind of so comes So punk from. rock comes in with the attitude of... DIY. DIY. And they were able to take control. It was the feeling of, we're going to make our own magazines, we're going to make our own bands, we're going to open our own clubs, and we have control. Right. And so we come after that, right? Because we're a little bit younger, still part of Generation X, but still a little younger, and we're Generation Atari. And that affects us, but we're too young for it. Because our sisters played all the punk rock. They went out to the shows. They were gone all the time. But we're like, wait, wait a minute. This is our thing. I can stick this Asteroids cartridge in my Atari 2600. And now I'm in control of the TV. The thing that's been pushed down to me my entire life. Right. right? So I'm in control. And then, just a few years later, we discover computers. And the computer, not only can we take control, we can make hey. our own content. And at the time, what I think is fascinating to me, and it's hard to fathom now, is how close... It, when you put a disc into your Apple IIe, you put a disc in your Atari computer, how close it is from running a game to writing a game, right? right. The, the commands almost are the same, right? I, I, I put in, I list, my, list out my file listing, I say run, but like the same almost actions, I could sit down and start creating my own game at the same time. The distance between consumer and creator was so close. Very slim margins. And, and, and it is now, I mean, on the internet now it is too, but like, but, but, but not for like quality content versus what anyone can make. You know, there's a huge gap and even like video games is even huger. Well, I'm no, not, yeah, I'm not, um, and I think you're right about that, but I'm going to say that ever, since every generation gets their control, that's the control that this generation has right. and they like it. And so I'm not going to, 
Yeah, I mean, our they're not the vertical blank generation. They've got they're they're the me generation, okay. if you want to say it, where they're able to take and show everything they've created to the world. Right, and that's cool. But so so then we're able to use our computers. But then a time came when those sort of home computers kind of disappeared out of the out of the public sphere. Like you didn't really see much about computers. Maybe it was us. We grew up in a high, high school. We did, did our own thing. We go to college. There's no everything in college was geared towards like engineering for for uh, aerospace or business computing. Right. right. Those are the two things you you could do. There was nothing about creating content. Um, but lo and behold, a few years later, Web 1.0 comes out, and guess what? The rule, we didn't have any, for us, having come from the generation of being able to play games and then make our own in the early 80s, we didn't see any barriers between nope. just starting up the internet and web one point was just starting building whatever we wanted to, right? And I think part of that is because our, that second half of the Atari generation, the Atari generation, or generation Atari generation, was sort of, sort of taught that we could do whatever we wanted. Right. We could build. Right. We could do it. Um, looking back, a lot of it was crap, but but that that's not, not the point. The point was was we weren't taught that we couldn't do it. Right. <laughs> and then and it even goes further. And I like the fact that each generation that we've seen going from analog to digital has been able to take more and more control. But they've been abstracted from the kernel. So the actual system further and further, further away. away. But I think that vertical blank period as we're describing is that space where it's you're you're so close. Yeah, between consuming and creating is you're not you weren't yeah. abstracted that much at all. It sort of lives in that nuance of being able to you know that nostalgia, that nuance, that 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 space where one frame is written and the and the next is going to be written. Um, you know, and the ability to change what's going to be written on the next, next frame, frame in that time frame—that's that's that's control. That's, that's control. the ability to control your destiny. I think that's what we were taught, and what we thrived on, and what was so exciting about at that time, and what what as we've moved further and further away from that, what we'd like to get back, back to. to there. Right. And so, living in the vertical blank is the idea that there was there was a time when things were were so fresh and interesting, and there were so many possibilities that you kind of want to go back and understand why that was so interesting and how can we recapture some of that now. And also, the systems were simple enough that you could control the whole thing. Yeah, you could you could know it all and control it all. And now that's just not possible. Right. And things change so quickly so that you, you you concentrate on one technology and the rest pass you by if you don't try to concentrate on, on all of them. So let's summarize, Steve. Going forward... The vertical blank is well. The into the vertical blank generation Atari is about nuance. It's about nostalgia. It's about that time that you think back to when things felt like you could do anything, when you had the power to do anything, and trying to figure out what that was then and what it means today. Yep. What about you? To me, it's that that. 60 times a second or 50, depending on where you live or how your TVs work, you get that chance to change something before the next frame happens, which is an allegory for life of the second half of the of Generation X generation. What's well, a gallery of life for everybody? For but, everybody, but somehow that's imprinted on our brains. In our brains, that's imprinted, and and to lose that control has taken a toll on a lot of people of our generation. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think think about this. 
and this is, let's leave with this. Back when we started playing Atari, we were, we were, we go out in the regular world, talk with people all the time, things would be frustrating. You go home to escape to playing a game. Right. Right? You were connected to be disconnected because you were connected, meaning you were just playing with you and the TV, and but you want to disconnect from the world. But now you go, kids who play games now, and even me, you, I mean, you go out and you can't, you get connected to your game, but you're not disconnected from people. You've got people chatting at you, you know, um, phones going off, messages come coming through. You can't disconnect. There's no disconnect. There's no di- disconnect. And I think I think one of the one of the one of the issues would be, and this may be totally Luddite-ish or or totally nostalgic old schools, like there needs to be the ability to disconnect, right? right? And this time, that time in between the frames, right? That's the time you get to disconnect. disconnect. That's what? the time there you is get... no vertical blank now. No. No, there isn't. There's no time to disconnect. And so maybe maybe this is about trying to understand what that meant and what was good about it and how can we recapture that. All right. I guess that's it. Into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. Hey, thanks again for joining us for Into the Vertical Blank, Growing Up Atari, Season 1, Episode 2, A Hole Burned in My Pocket, Toys R Us, and the Atari 7800. Next time, we'll be covering the first video game that really dug its nails into me and got me hooked. That game was Asteroids. You can read the show notes for this episode, or any episode, at www.8bitrocket.com. That's the number 8, B-I-T-R-O-C-K-E-T dot com. Please leave us feedback and comments and suggestions there also. We'd love to hear feedback on this episode or any episode, especially any memories you have of your first 7800 experience, Toys R Us, and any experience or memories you have with any version of Asteroids on any computer, any console, or any arcade cabinet. Anything you might be fond of or not so fond of. We're also available via email at 8bitrocket.collectibles at gmail.com That's 8bitrocket dot collectibles C-O-L-L-E-C-T-I-B-L-E-S at gmail.com We also have an Into the Vertical Blank Facebook page and again, we are very active on Twitter. Together, 8-Bit Steve and 8-Bit Jeff both use the at Atari underscore VB underscore pod address. Jeff tweets all day long at the 8-Bit Rocket address and Steve at the at FultonBot address. That's at F-U-L-T-O-N-B-O-T. Hope to see you on the site. Hope to see you on Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Into the vertical blank.
Next frame calculated, prepare to write new data, V blank ending.